Welcome to the VML Voice, the official podcast of the Virginia Municipal League. I'm your host, Rob Bullington. Our health and the health of our environment are inexorably linked. To quote from one of the leading thinkers in the field, Gro Harlem Brundtland, former Prime Minister of Norway and Director General of the World Health Organization, you cannot achieve environmental security and human development without addressing the basic issues of health and nutrition. This isn't a radical idea. Indeed, it's institutionalized. Here in Virginia, the Virginia Department of Health's Office of Environmental Health Services is on point for this essential work. I recently had the opportunity to chat with a couple people from that agency, and I'd like to share our conversation with you. Before we dive in, I should let you know that we spoke on March 18th, so any facts or figures you hear may have changed a bit. Today, we're talking to a couple of folks from the Virginia Department of Health's Office of Environmental Health Services, which we're going to call OEHS because no organization can get by without an acronym, VML being a great example. I'm joined by Director Julie Henderson and Legal Affairs and Environmental Health Coordinator Carrie Atwood. Needless to say, it's been a busy 12 months at the Virginia Department of Health, so I really appreciate your time today. To get started, can you both please tell me more about what you do specifically in your role, um, starting with Julie, please? Sure. Um, now I am the Director of Environmental Health Services, and I uh, took on this role last year in March, right at the beginning of this pandemic. So we're a year in. So it's appropriate, I guess, for us to be talking today to each other. Um, and you know, I quickly just shifted to working on COVID response and helping to uh, message out to the community about our executive orders. So that's why we're joining you on the call today. Thanks, Julie. And, and Carrie, what does a legal affairs and environmental health coordinator do? Well, I can tell you what I used to do <laughs> before COVID came in place. I worked with the division, helping them create policy and draft regulations and consult on enforcement cases, occasionally serving as a hearing officer, and recently also became the acting hearings officer for the division. Um, and then, as Julie said, COVID hit. And much to our surprise, we discovered that we were the enforcement <laughs> uh, agency for the restrictions in the executive order. So we quickly had to switch to coming up with an enforcement program for all of our local health departments and educating our local health departments on what the executive orders said, what the requirements were, what the public health implications were behind all the requirements. Why are we doing this thing? And then how do we enforce these uh, restrictions, especially going into places that we normally don't permit? Usually we're permitting restaurants and on-site sewage systems and private wells and things of that nature. So we had not dealt with retail stores before. Um, so this was new for us, how to go into these places, talk to people about what the requirements were, educate, inform, and then enforce if necessary. So was that brand new to OEHS, the enforcement piece of that? The enforcement piece for the executive orders, yes. We have enforcement in place for our, for our regulatory programs in general, um, which follows the Administrative Process Act, the APA. So we were familiar with doing enforcement, but not uh, the enforcement that the executive orders require which is either a criminal misdemeanor or a civil injunction. 
Now, those were options uh, for our regulatory programs, and those were usually for heightened enforcement where there was a severe public health threat. But under the executive order, there were, those were our only two options uh, other than for our permitted facilities like restaurants where we could suspend their uh, restaurant permit if necessary. Rob, if I could add to that, I'd say, you know, I think the governor really looked to our environmental health staff and the local health districts because we have a really good ongoing relationship with both local government and, and industry, um, mainly when it comes to restaurants and hotels and, and campgrounds and swimming pools and things like that. But, um, you know, we're seen as a kind of connector between um, state government and, and, and local government and, and private industry. And so we can, you know, I think our staff could quickly really pivot to providing the public health background as to why this pandemic was, you know, so urgent for us to respond um, and, for, and for people to, to, to follow the executive orders. And you know, that majority of what we've been doing is really educating um, and, and trying to, to educate the public on what these requirements are um, and enforce if we have to, but really try to, to educate first. Educate. That's a word I was glad to hear at that point, because as you'll soon find out, I was very much in need of some education before we could continue our conversation. Prior to scheduling this call, I had no idea what OEHS does, so I looked it up and found the mission statement is to protect public health by preventing the transmission of disease through food, milk, shellfish, water, and sewage, and to work in partnership with other agencies to protect the environment. Now, if this was one of those like Sesame Street skits where you're asked to identify which thing didn't fit, I'd say shellfish seems oddly specific. But then I started digging deeper and I found all types of seemingly disparate things that fall under your purview. And just to run down a few of these these things, we got bedding and upholstered furniture program, a childhood lead poisoning prevention, food safety, marinas, migrant labor camps, shellfish, campgrounds, pool and spas, tourist lodging, toxicology. Uh, what's the common thread for you? Or to put it another way, when, when you're at a dinner party and somebody asks you what you do for a living, how do you answer without setting in for like a day-long discourse? Julie? Um, well, uh, people are always interested in the shellfish part, and, and I agree. I worked in that program for several years, um, and, and Virginia has a pretty robust um, harvest when it comes to shellfish and clams are one of the largest on the East Coast. Uh, for private aquaculture, and so we like to talk about that a lot, of course. Um, and then they're always really surprised about what we do as it relates to migrant labor. And and really, when you talk about environmental health, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into that bucket, as you just found. Um, that can include, you know, toxicology and, and anything that relates to human interaction with the environment, which we know includes. You know, obvious things, sewage, sewage and water, but really looking at um, pathogens and viruses and, and toxic substances that might impact somebody as they move throughout the environment, right? And that can be in a restaurant, that can be um, when they're swimming at the beach, it can be when they're drinking water out of their, you know, out of their tap at their home. Um, so all kinds of ways that environmental health specialists working in local health districts and out in their community impact the environment. I mean, we like to think that we have really 
um, the most, one of the largest impacts of the health in the health department. We interact with people in their homes and at their business and you know throughout their community. Um, and again, I think that's why the governor looked to us to be really the leader here in protecting people as it came to community mitigation and COVID nineteen. Carrie, it it seems to me like with so much of that falling under the umbrella of your agency, you can't be limited in your in your knowledge base. You have to be kind of generalists. Is that a challenge in your day to day work? I mean, it's it's certainly a challenge to become a subject matter expert <laughs> in all of these areas. Um, but all of our programs fall under the same legal framework, basically. So that wasn't as um, horrifying as it might sound to be a jack of all trades in all these uh, different areas. It is really the work of our normal health specialists, which is truly astonishing because they are subject matter experts on every single one of these issues that we've talked about so far. I just do the legal stuff. <laughs> that, that just follows the Administrative Process Act or it follows the Virginia Code sections that are specified. So that my job is actually, I feel like, a little easier than environmental health specialists who are out in the field. Okay. So OEHS has a lot of moving pieces. Got it. I wanted to know more, though, about how all those pieces are structured to work together. Julie filled me in. Uh, Rob, we're structured centrally. We have staff that work within our office that are charged with writing the regulations, working during the General Assembly to help legislators with um, amending the laws. And we also write policy and, and train staff. So the, the way the health department is structured is we have the, our central office, which is OHS, and then the local health districts that are charged with conducting the inspections and issuing permits and, and doing that kind of direct communication with the community. So we're really supporting them and providing that framework that they then kind of you know, execute. But we do have lots of regulations that um, all those all the programs that you mentioned come along with a regulation and, and permitting and inspection authority. And we have about 70 staff in total in our office, and some of that we directly administer. So the shellfish program is completely independent from local health districts. We have people out in boats doing water sampling, and, doing, and we have three labs, and they're conducting lab work. And so that's all independent, along with our vetting inspectors who, who are independent from local health districts. But the vast majority of the inspection and, and permitting process happens at the local health district level. Okay, so now I knew what OEHS does and how it's set up to do it. And I knew that, of course, the pandemic had become the health department's number one priority for the past 12 months. But there's more to life than pandemics, thank heavens. And I wanted to find out what other big-ticket items were going to be at the forefront for my callers in the coming months and year. One of the things that's made the last 12 months or so so crazy and um, I think continues to make us all feel overwhelmed from time to time isn't just that we're dealing with a pandemic, it's that we're dealing with a pandemic and all the other stuff we normally deal with. So pandemics aside, what do you see as the two or three biggest or most challenging environmental health issues facing the Commonwealth in the next two to three years? Carrie, do you want to talk about our new bill? <laughs> I, I can talk about, from my perspective, what I think some um, issues are that we're going to be facing. And 
One of them is an environmental justice and making sure that we integrate environmental justice um, initiatives, strategies, thoughts, and all of our tasks that we do at the health department in every regulation that we write, every policy that we look at, and in every interaction that we have with uh, people in our communities. It has been on people's minds, but it has not been put into actual uh, programs across the state agencies in the Commonwealth until relatively recently. We had a couple bills in the General Assembly that talked about it. So that is one of the goals for the Virginia Department of Health is to integrate environmental justice um, into all of our programs, to educate our staff on environmental justice issues, and to inform our communities um, about our thought process in regulations and policy and make sure that they are included as stakeholders when we move forward with any sort of regulatory action. And then the other one I would, I would say, which is kind of, you know, intrinsically linked to that, is I've dealt a lot with the division of uh, water and wastewater, and it is providing adequate water and wastewater to all citizens of the Commonwealth. You would be surprised about the amount of your fellow citizens that don't have access to safe drinking water and to adequate wastewater infrastructure. So the work of the health department continues unabated. But what about the public's awareness of that work and its overall mission? Has the light that's been shown on their work during the past 12 months been helpful? Here's Julie with some thoughts. I think this pandemic has really brought attention to the public about what public health is and and what we do at the health department. And it's identified some real gaps that we have when it comes to resources and and our understanding in general of disease transmission and the impact that um, local government and local public health staff can have when it comes to communicating risk and and the importance of when we're in something like this and even outside of it, the importance of having public health requirements and and people understanding that. Um, And we have, you know, an opportunity here, I think, going forward to really work on building trust when it relates to government and the community. Yeah, I think you're 100% right that the the role that your agency fills is probably a lot more front and center in people's minds than it was 12 months ago. I mean, it's become in many ways the most important thing in people's lives. So before we dive into that, I'd be interested because you just mentioned the, the stormwater and wastewater um, work that you all do. Um, have any studies or regulatory processes or any of the other normal work that affects localities, have they been curtailed or altered? Have you had to change course because of what's been going on with the pandemic? We were able with the emergency order to amend some of our regulatory requirements. And we did that early on and found it to be pretty successful. So things like restaurants having to pay for a permit during the pandemic, um, permits expiring, the requirements for um, inspections to be even conducted, knowing that there was a risk. One, you know, restaurants were closed, facilities, you know, facilities weren't in operation early on. Um, but even 
after the fact, we have regulatory requirements for inspection frequency and knowing that restaurants and other businesses were not um, in full operation or really just kind of struggling to figure out what was required in the executive orders, we have we reached out by a phone and, and email and you know tried to make ourselves very much available to the industry to talk to them about the emergency orders not so much focused on permitting requirements and regulatory requirements outside of the pandemic, right? So really trying to be a resource for them. And um, we sent surveys out and things like that to, to try to get a feel for how they understood and, and were able to, to implement the requirements in the executive order. So for instance, you know, restaurants couldn't allow for bar seating. They had to close congregate areas. They wanted to open, you know, to operate outside. So prior to, to that, a restaurant may have only had indoor seating, but they now wanted to have literally a restaurant in the street, right? So working with them on how to do that and, and not focus so much on the prescriptive requirements in the regulation about food service, but how can they continue to operate safely outside of normal ways that, you know, restaurants typically operate um, and able to comply with the executive order. Yeah, and I know some localities had had sort of some great successes doing that, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if they try to keep that going. Another word that jumped out at me in the OEHS mission statement is sewage, which I'd like to remind our listeners is not a dirty word. I recall that at one point last year, scientists and officials were looking into tracking the spread of COVID-19 through its presence in sewage. It's like for a minute there, sewage was hot. Was that an exciting time for OEHS? Were you looped in on that effort in any way? Yeah, we have, because of our shellfish program, we have an excellent relationship with the um, Hampton Road Sanitation District and staff there are actively involved in on-site sewage for sewage tracking very knowledgeable about that and so they connected with us i'd say early summer last year to talk about their interest and in doing some research there and they were part of a world a worldwide um research initiative to look at covid or sars cov 2 actually the virus and in sewage and so we started talking about that and then recently were awarded funding through the CDC to hire folks here at the local health, or excuse me, in Austin Barnett Health Services to provide more of a framework for the state to start doing additional research and sampling when it came to SARS-CoV-2 and sewage. And sewage tracking, virus tracking, bacterial tracking is not new. It's something that um, occurs. We do that in with the shellfish program. And it's also used to look at other types of pandemics or outbreaks too. So um, it's not a new program, but it was new for Virginia when it came obviously specifically to this novel virus. And you think about it with norovirus, um, things, Vibrio, things like that, but it's this is very new when it comes to, to COVID. And so one of our hopes is as we start to move towards an endemic versus a pandemic, meaning this is a virus that, that potentially is here for a while. And um, our hope is that we can use this research and, and method to look for uptick. So um, once we are now, our 
restrictions are eased, we're out in the community, we're not um, in the middle of this emergency order, that we can use this to, to look for spikes in outbreaks and then respond that way. But we're, we're just not there yet. It's, it's so new. Um, but that's our hope to do that going forward. That's fantastic. And I remember when it first came up sort of in some news articles, it seemed like this really surprising thing to a lot of people, myself included. But when you talk about it that way, it makes so much sense. And um, it sounds like it's it's a really promising way to, to keep track of it going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, one more opportunity for people to learn about <laughs> what, you know, public health and kind of how, how we respond. Shellfish, check. Sewage, check. You might think I'd covered all the most pressing issues at this point in our conversation. But... I had two state officials with deep knowledge of the Commonwealth's efforts to overcome COVID-19 on the line. So it was time to stop ignoring the elephant in the room, grab the bull by the horns, saddle that pony, and, well, stop using animal metaphors and just ask the appropriate questions. Let's dig into some of the COVID data. Give me a snapshot of where we are right now in terms of rate of cases and vaccines. Sure. Um, so we're hearing a lot about vaccines. You know, people are really focused on that, and that's great. It's positive. It's something that um, you know we hear about at vaccine clinics. People are. It's like going to an ice cream shop. You know, people are super excited to be there. They're you know they're emotional. They're able to see their families finally for the you know first time sometimes in, in months and even even a year. Um, and and Dr. Abula, who's our um, vaccine lead for the state, and Dr. Fauci talk a lot about the 75% goal, right? Um, And that's not a hardline goal, but, you know, we talk a lot about what herd immunity is and and what it means. Um, And right now, we are, Virginia is rated really high when it comes to the vaccine rollout, but we're still at 12.5% of the population. And that continues to increase every day. But um, that's also the eligible population. So right now, that includes adults that are that are eligible to get the vaccine. And you know, one of the important things here I'd like to say about that is, with 12.5% of the population vaccinated, that means we still have to do the important things that we know protect people from viral transmission, and that is wearing your mask. And um, limiting your proximity to people, right? So what we call social distancing with people that are outside of your family. And um, that's their community mitigation. That's what Carrie and I have been working on and doing over, over the past year. And so um, focusing on, you know, the numbers are great. So we know our case count, um, that's going down, that continues to decrease, but it's still high when we look at it compared to what it was back in the fall and before we had this large spike um, from from the winter. So, you know, it feels a lot better, <laughs> um, the fact that it's going down, but um, it's still relatively high. So that's what we keep talking about wearing masks. And in our positivity rate, I can talk a little bit about that for a second. So you hear what the test positivity rate, you hear that a lot in our test positivity rate is well, and it's been decreasing for, for a while, it's at 5.2 right now. But what that really means is that we're testing people um, and, and we're testing a lot, right? So it, it's not the best indicator to use when it comes to, to um, 
how we need to continue to protect ourselves. It just says we're doing a lot of testing. <laughs> and um, that was a real focus for us in the beginning of the pandemic because one, we didn't have a test. Um, and we didn't have a lot of tests for a while. So um, that, that and, and we were at first testing, you know, the state was testing, right? The health department was testing, but now um, that's moved over to the private companies and private industry, and that's a good thing, but our case count is still high. So you say we're at 12.5% vaccinated, and when my time comes, I'll be happy to take that number up to 12.500001%. <laughs> Can you talk about where we are in terms of neighboring states at this point? Sure. So I'd say, you know, Virginia's done really well when it comes to number of cases, and we can, you know, we're very grateful for our governor for that, for instituting the mask order early on and um, putting in protections in the executive order early on during this pandemic. We really think that helped a lot with keeping our numbers relatively low. Um, when we look at other states, the New York Times has a tracker for this, and CDC has a lot of information related to showing um, how Virginia is, is performing, if you will, compared to other states. But we remain one of the top 10 states when it comes to COVID cases. And Julie means that Virginia remains in the top 10 states of least amount of COVID cases and deaths. Oh, so, yeah, sorry. People. <laughs> um, they're... You know, I'd say we don't want to downplay what Virginians have been experiencing when it comes to cases and deaths, because there certainly have been a lot of people who have lost loved ones and family members and co-workers um, during this pandemic. It's worth pausing a moment here to reflect on what Julie was just saying. This has been an emotional time for everyone. Sadness and frustration have been in ample supply since the pandemic began. But there's been plenty of anger, too. Unfortunately... Some of that anger has come from seeing people and businesses flaunting the rules and restrictions, even as most have followed them in the interest of the common good. VDH came up with a way to channel that emotion and, at the same time, serve their mission. Let's find out more. Carrie was talking earlier about the um, enforcement component related to the executive orders, and I know that um, VDH set up a complaint portal how is that wrapped into your work and how does VDH investigate complaints when they come up? I think a lot of people would be interested to hear how that works. So we set up the complaint portal um, beginning of the summer of last year. We were, we had a hotline available and we were trying to take complaints in that way and then disperse them to the local health departments as needed. And we just had such um, a large number coming in that we quickly realized that we needed a more centralized system. So we set up this complaint portal that allows anyone to report um, an incident of a violation of the governor's orders, and it will allow you to talk about what kind of establishment you're in, what kind of violation you observed, and then that information is given to the local health department where the complaint is coming from. If it's a store, it's going to be that health department that the store is located in. And the local health department then takes those complaints and investigates those complaints. And a lot of that involves calling the facility that the complaint is about and just talking to the manager about what's going on in the facility, what the complaint was, um, do they need any assistance, do they need some posters to put on the doors about the COVID restrictions, do you need further education for you, you or your employees? 
So that's how the vast majority of complaints are investigated. And we've gotten over 70,000 complaints in our complaint portal. I guess last summer. You share enforcement ability with some other state agencies. BDACs for one, which is uh, they are Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. And so they regulate uh, gas stations and grocery stores and things of that nature. So we will partner with them on enforcement. We also par- partner with Virginia ABC um, for a lot of the restaurants, breweries, wineries, things like that. They have been a very helpful partner as well. And then we have the Department of Labor and Industry, which um, regulates employees and employers, and they have their own set of regulations in regards to the COVID restrictions. So we partner with them as well in enforcement actions. I will say that out of the 70 some thousand complaints, only about 5% have actually uh, ended up in an enforcement action of some sort. And that's because the the business or, or whatever that's being complained against resists or pushes back? Or is that because they just don't take any action at all? Right. It can be a combination of any of those things. If we aren't getting compliance through educational outreach and information, or if it's, you know, flagrant or it is a huge public health um, threat as a large event would be, where there's a lot of potential for community spread, then we will likely take an enforcement action. Many of our listeners are local government leaders and officials. And I think they'd like to know more about what restrictions are in place that could continue to affect local government operations in the foreseeable future. And maybe dovetailing at that, what lessons you've learned that they should also consider um, in conducting their operations even beyond the pandemic? Well, I'll start with like the mask mandate will likely be in place for, for a while. We know that it's a proven method of mitigating spread of COVID. And it will be is in the executive order as a requirement for local governments. Um, So they would need to be aware of that. Um, Also, social gatherings and now board meetings and things of that nature, which is part of your business, is not social gathering. That is a function of employment, the board, and nothing in the order is to limit the operation of government. But you know they should still consider social distancing to be practiced, um, just to limit the possible spread of COVID when they're having board meetings. And I would say like some lessons learned out of this, we (laughs) just like local governments, BDH had to pivot very quickly as well. And all of our meetings are now conducted virtually. And it has actually been a huge benefit for us um, because we talked about earlier, you know, did some of these things that you guys were working on really go by the wayside when COVID came up? Well, not really, not the big stuff, like the wastewater infrastructure um, work groups that we were on, the drinking water work groups, the talks about environmental justice. It actually uh, opened up more meetings to more people because more people could attend virtually than driving to Richmond for a day and sitting in a meeting. So that has all been a huge benefit, which I hope continues uh, past COVID times. Hopefully when we're past that horrible uh, COVID restrictions, we'll still be able to all gather virtually to talk about these important issues that affect all the health of the citizens of the Commonwealth. I can add to that. I I really agree, Carrie, with what you said. I do think one thing that um, we can look to improve, and I know it's been discussed at the General Assembly and it's generally discussed nationally, is improving access to the internet 
and and we had difficulty, you know, as we all had to move to to meeting virtually and getting just local health departments to to have the ability to to participate remotely. Um, so improving that, and I think we've seen that with schools and and you know when kids had to move to virtual online. It's just been a, a real struggle when we look for communities that don't have great broadband access. Um, and then I think also knowing that we have these essential businesses that operate and, and employees who who are you know subject to um, being sick and having to be out on, on leave and medical leave. And we talk a lot about that when it comes to restaurants. And that, you know, diseases are here, right, to say that's, that's why we um, are so involved in, in talking about adequate hand washing and not working while sick. Um, but when that's something I think we need to further discuss is providing people with sick leave and, and adequate care so they don't work while ill. That's my public health plug. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And if, if you think of anything anything that you'd like to add. You make sure you let your members know that they can always contact us with questions and concerns that we're, we're open to that too. Sure. You want to go ahead and do the um, you can get in touch with me at kind of announcement? So if you guys have any questions or concerns about the COVID restrictions or about environmental health in general, you can contact me, Carrie Atwood at K-A-R-R-I dot A-T-W-O-O-D at B-D-H dot Virginia dot gov. Julie Henderson, J-U-L-I-E dot H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N at V-D-H dot Virginia Spell dot gov. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Bye, bye. Bye. We've reached the end of another episode. Thanks for listening to the VML Voice, the official podcast of the Virginia Municipal League. The VML Voice is sponsored by Dominion Energy and Virginia Housing. We'll be back soon with another episode in which we will explore a different locality or issue. But rest assured, the focus will remain on Virginia and the local governments that make the Commonwealth work for everyone. If you have ideas for an episode of the VML Voice, or would like to inquire about sponsorship opportunities, you can contact me, Rob Bullington, at rbullington at vml.org. And now, here is this episode's VML Voice of Reason. Well, I can tell you what I used to do <laughs> before COVID came in place.